Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. I really appreciate you being on the podcast and it's like reliving the sugar summit days, except now I get to ask the question, <laughs> which <laughs> is okay. going to be really, really fun. So that's great. That's great. Um, we have definitely the um, interest in addiction and sugar in common. So I'm curious how you got into this line of work and helping people with their addictions. Yeah, I have a podcast version. It's uh, it usually brings up more questions than it answers. But the short version is I was a regular kid with a mother that was a sugar junkie and probably a father who was, well, not probably, was an alcoholic. And so I grew up loving sugar of every kind. I mean, just everything. There's a great video on YouTube. I don't know if you and I talked about it, but Eric Clapton sitting in the $7 million Antigua Treatment Center with Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes. And Ed says, so Eric, this uh, this addiction stuff, it all started with heroin, right? And he goes, no, Ed, it started with sugar. He said, when I was five years old, I was eating bread and butter and sugar sandwiches to change my state, anything that would change my state. And we used to eat bread and butter and sugar sandwiches and cinnamon toast with sugar on it and you know, Kool-Aid with three times the recipe. And, and if we didn't have a half inch of sugar when we got done eating our cereal in the morning, we had unfettered access to the sugar bowl, which still blows my mind. I got that sugar bowl from the estate. Um, you know, we didn't put enough sugar in that, in that cereal. So fast forward, you know, I loved everything, every kind of candy you can think of. My reward for being the pack mule going to the grocery store was always a candy of some kind. So I'd go, allowance. What do you spend a buck or two on back in the day? You know, you, you spend it on candy. So I loved it all. And then I ran into alcohol, drugs and alcohol, 13, 14 years old. And we can talk about that if you want, but that party lasted until I was 28. And I got sober. And like a lot of my fellows and a lot of the treatment centers and a lot of the, even the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, People subst- literally substitute sugar for their drug and alcohol issues, right? They go right back to it. You know, talk about the freshman 15, how it's like the freshman 50, you know, people gain pounds like really fast in recovery, first year of recovery, right? And, you know, it looks like they look a little healthier, but then it kind of goes past that, you know? And then they have, you know, they develop the diabetes and whatever. So I went on to have a regular life. I did raise a couple of sugar-free kids. Somehow I talked my wife at the time into having two children. They were twins, actually. Um, then she was sugar-free uh, while, you know, while she was pregnant, so in the womb till they were six years old. And that was a, really a hell of an experiment and just an amazing eye-opening experience. And for the rest of their child, then we never had it in the house, but they did have it at outside birthday parties. But I went on to have a regular life, business career, and you know, did a lot of stuff online and whatever. And about 10 years ago, I picked up the domain sugaraddiction.com because I figured out what do I want to do for the rest of my life? And I've always enjoyed helping people with recovery stuff, whether it's drugs and alcohol or whatever. But the sugar thing was starting to get to me because of the obesity crisis and overweight kids. It just hurts my heart to watch the over, overweight kids because, look, they aren't buying their food before they're 10, you know, or whatever. Their, their parents are giving them this stuff. And doing the summits where you and I met, you know, running into Dr. Lustig and all these other people who are have been studying this stuff for years, it just it's always been a fascination of mine, right? And so I literally was giving out the best information I could find at the time for six or seven years, but didn't really have any success until I started to form communities and groups and coaching stuff where people got one-on-one and or group support because it takes group support because folks are like, you know, it's so, look, you can give a baby this stuff, like if one-year-old with no legal, moral, or ethical worries, it's okay, you know, and then the society, at least the people that I work with now, there's a lot of pain out there, people that are going blind, getting diabetes diagnosis, two and 300 pounds overweight, and they still cannot quit sugar. It's a true addiction. And I just, you know, that's how I got here. That's the short version. And probably, like I said, it brings up more questions than it answers. 
Oh, oh, I've got some questions. I first, <laughs> I think it's really amazing that your wife at the time uh, during pregnancy was sh- did not do any sugar. I mean, you mm-hmm. and I both know that that gets passed through the genes, and that that makes your kid much more likely to be addicted to sugar. You know, and you know, we've seen that in the studies. So that's pretty forward thinking. Why did you decide to do that at the time? Because I think that that was probably preceding the research that was out there on that. Right. And, and, and what happened is I picked up a book called Sugar Blues. Was, oh. Not that it was accidental because I was pretty health conscious and uh, it was popular at the time. It was in the 70s and redone in the 80s. And it was written by a guy who was at a party one time and a woman's voice from behind said, he's putting two lumps of sugar in his coffee. And the woman's voice says, I wouldn't have that in my house, let alone my body, right? And it was Gloria Swanson, the famous mm-hmm. movie star, right? And so like, they, he went on to marry Gloria Swanson, wrote this book. He was an author before that. And they promoted it all over. And it was pretty popular back in the early 80s, you know? And, and so I picked that book up. And uh, I just was fascinated. I love the history story, the story of the English empire being grown on the backs of slavery and they take empty ships from England, go to uh, Africa, pick up slaves, go to the Caribbean and you know South America and, and pick up rum and molasses and sugar and tea and coffee and then bring it back to Europe and they grew literally the El Chapo has nothing on this empire. They just grew all over the world on the backs of slavery and sugar mostly. Mm-hmm. And so that fascinated me. And it still fascinates me. I call myself like if I were to be, a, you know, get an MD or a PhD or something, it'd be in evolutionary biology or evolutionary anthropology to figure out how do we get in this mess? You know, it just interests me and it interested me. So then I kind of tried to quit and it was not as easy as it sounded, you know, I, so I finally did quit and uh, took a couple of years, but I, you know, didn't have anybody really to talk to about it. So I just kept trying and made it. So mm-hmm. that's how I, that's the part of the story I missed. I left out. Mm-hmm. Cause you've been sugar free and not doing any processed sugar for how many years? Yeah. Sugar, flour and caffeine free for 30 years. Yeah. 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 And honestly, it's weird because I can tell you the date that I got sober, but I could not tell you the date of any of those other three because it was just a blur a little bit because it was up and down and backwards and forwards and starts and stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it, I think it takes a lot of will willpower, honestly, to get off of all of those things. So you said something really interesting on the sugar summit that, um, I want to go back to, you said that the folks that you help with addictions, primarily drug addictions, mm. say that the hardest drug for them to get off of is sugar. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What happened was weird. My parents are still alive and I don't know. I grew up in the anonymous programs and I didn't tell anybody really. I mean, no one bothered me. You'd be surprised. No one worries about what you're drinking or doing drugs, but you know, if you don't use it. So I never said anything and, and I didn't, I wasn't public online or anywhere about my substance use disorder, or my, my recovery. So when they passed, I said, screw it, man. First of all, the recovery advocacy movement needs stories of people who have long-term recovery so that they can get help in drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. right? So I, that argument and that uh, advocacy movement made sense to me, still makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm, I'm a big part of, I'm big, um, you know, participant in that. But when I did that, I literally, I literally got this flood of people who had been sober 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I got a coach sober 20 years who could not put down the sugar. Even though they've been to some recovery meetings for food and sugar, they still couldn't do it. And they didn't seem to make the connection with the addiction. Now, here's folks with an addiction background. And to a man, to a woman, everyone that I've ever talked to who's a recovering alcoholic or drug addict said that the hardest drug, they, the hardest thing they ever put down was the sugar. To a man, every single woman, every mm. single man said the same thing. And I believe it has to do with the social pressure, the social acceptability yeah. of the sugar in society. Like I said, there's no moral, legal, ethical, or you know, worries about giving this product to a baby, to a one-year-old. So people just haven't, Dr. Lustig says that, uh, you know, we're eight years into a 30-year tectonic shift. It's going to take time. The science is now here, but just the public's not aware yet. Mm -hmm. 
and it's such a it's such an addictive drug, right? So, yeah. I mean, if it's not sugar, you see people substitute with alcohol, or if you don't have alcohol, you see people substitute with sugar. Mm-hmm. So, what are we seeing? You know, it's been interesting. You know, here in Colorado, w- when the pandemic hit or whatnot, and they were closing down pot shops and um, and liquor stores, uh, mm-hmm. there was actually, you know, they were only able to shut both of those places down for. <laughs> couple hours (laughs) before, you know, I think that they got so many calls and I I think that the state government was concerned that there was going to be a riot. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so those businesses, and I think that that's created a lot of tension, were considered essential during, during this time, which to me speaks to the level of addiction. I mean, mm-hmm. I would be that that's crazy to me, right? Yeah, I mean, the sure. line was around the block to look mm-hmm. at, you know, for these people um, to get their alcohol and their drugs. Like, what's your comment on that? Well, I mean, the beverage associations and the convenience store associations and the grocery associations say that from one year to the next, like from last uh, April, March, April kind of thing, or February, March, April, sales went up in some cases 100%, like <laughs> literally doubled for people that were locked down. So it's not a Colorado <laughs> thing either. It's everything. Oh, my gosh. So it's like, you know, some 40, 50, 60% wine, 50, 80%, like, you know, liquor's down in general, but beer and wine and and the seltzer stuff's up and uh, 100%, you know, so... And again, the states of marijuana, like you said, are the same thing. So, you know, it's a, I think people's anxiety, their financial anxiety is ramped up and their, their addictions ramped up there. I've been following, cause I'm a big fan of the movement of recovery stuff online, both drugs and alcohol and the sugar stuff. But so I follow a lot of the press about, it. I got some alerts and stuff to try and follow it. And, you know, the telemedicine about recovery, but more importantly, with the lack of recovery um, meetings, because you can't go to recovery in-person recovery meetings, mm-hmm. people are relapsing left and right. And it's a problem for people in early recovery. You know, mm-hmm. it's a big problem. And so, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. That's a, it's uh, when anxiety is higher, you know, people, and this is what the bulk of the main message of my work is, is it's a common construct in alcohol and drug recovery, that if you're 14 or 15 years old, when you quit using alcohol and drugs, that's when you stopped growing emotionally. You stopped handling your, you know, your whatever, your angst, your worry, your your fear with drugs and alcohol. And now you have to relearn that. And you have to have other systems, emotional management systems to learn it. And the thing people don't get is that the sugar is the same way. You know, we grew up as a baby. Our, you know, you and I talked about the most fascinating stuff in the world the neuro pathways that are grooved by this drug that says worry, sugar, you know, even your mother would give it to you. It's like, she doesn't have time. She'd give you a cookie point. She towards the TV, you know, instead of giving you a hug and say, what's wrong, dear, she, they used it. And so then we, we patterned that and we used sugar. And like I said earlier, I mean, many, many people, when they do quit drugs and alcohol, substitute the sugar, they go back to the sugar because that was is and remains the original gateway drug, the original drug of abuse, the original drug of, of uh, you know, emotional management. And it's ubiquitous. So people don't think about it. It's like, they don't think like, oh, I'm upset. I have to have this. They just go do it. They get a quote unquote craving, right? You know, what is a craving, but a need for a dopamine squirt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't it make you deeply sad? I mean, it makes me deeply sad when I hear you you know, talk about the emotions to it because, you know, I'm so busy yammering on about dopamine um, Mm -hmm. that I'm never really thinking about how these people are craving alcohol or, you know, or sugar um, when they really needed a hug or when they really needed to be Mm -hmm. listened to. That is, that's really honestly tragic. That is, again, the core of the message, both the socialization, which we talked about is because it's so ubiquitous, but more importantly, when in my work and most um, drug and alcohol counseling kind of work, when someone actually realizes that this is what they are 
doing, that they have cleaved apart the social acceptance of this substance with the management of their, um, their emotions, then they get well. And it's not until when they keep trying to like think of what food do I eat? What exercise do I do? All this kind of other stuff that's peripheral. They don't, you know, it's a waste of time because, and, and you cannot take people from sad, the standard American diet into this thought process. It has to be a gentle movement, right? You have to move them across uh, time and, and you have to let them, like we were talking about, they have to see the stories of other people who have gone through the same similar backgrounds and have gone through these same processes. One of the things that's amazing is that if you talk to someone who's been through a true food, processed food addiction recovery, someone who's been a couple hundred pounds overweight or was always you know, overweight as a child, but then decided that they accept the idea that 100% abstinence from sugar and flour it will save their life mentally and physically, and then they fall to a right-sized body, those folks will tell you, especially folks that have been through the drug and alcohol thing, but even folks that have not, their recovery is the same. It's not like they have to relearn eating. They don't have to relearn anything but how to handle and deal with those emotions that come up during that time period, which is usually the first couple of years, you know? Mm-hmm. And how much first, my first question is, I hear all these folks say that, well, I had ice cream. It was a happy time for me and my family. You know, mm. I remember positive, there's a positive association with ice cream and their mother and they've lost their mother now. And so they go and have ice cream. What's your comment on that? That it was more of an, a positive association versus a negative event. Yeah, no, I get it. But when was the last time you saw a movie where a woman got dumped and didn't have an ice cream party? You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, like a complete social norm accepted. My mother believed sugar was love. My mother's mother, my grandmother died when she was eight years old. Right. And they made an arrangement. My uncle, my grandfather moved in with his aunt or with his sister, my great aunt, my mother's aunt. And across the street, their, their relatives owned a general store. And they made an arrangement. Here she is, an eight-year-old child, just lost her mother. That any time she walked into that store, she could have any candy she wanted. No, pro- no cost, put it on my tab. It's a beautiful gesture, right? But it taught her that, you know, being kind to her meant sugar, love. And for us, it was the same thing. That's why we had unfettered access to the sugar ball, because she just didn't put that those things together. And no one does, really. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an enculturation. It's not, the substance has nothing to do with the love, right? It's a, it's a, like people try and say, bring back Christmas the way it was supposed to be. It doesn't have anything to do with the gifts. It's, you know, getting together in love. And if that's the case, not if that's the case with, you know, family, familial love or any kind of love, it doesn't have a damn thing to do with the substance you're ingesting. It does accentuate it, sure. It, meaning, like when you get a dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all these great blasts from the use of excess, excessive amounts of these mm-hmm. products, then the event is more memorable. You feel it at a higher level. You know, you, you, you're, you're, there's more good feelings around it. And these are evolutionary feelings a million or two years in the making that are now being manipulated by a substance that people have enculturated to believe they belong. And I understand why, you know, mm-hmm. I understand how it happened. I love the history. It's one of my, if not my favorite subject, how we got into this mess. Now we have to realize that the science says like drinking and driving, like smoking, like these, the science says that possibly this evolution into our current societal norm may be detrimental to our health, right? Or your health, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the short version of, you know, sugar is love kind of thing. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't dispute that it is used as that. Do you believe that, um, the further the addiction into drugs, into alcohol, 
Um, do you believe that that's associated with a childhood trauma? Is it that simple? Is it simplified into that? I'm a huge fan of ACEs, and I believe that trauma or disconnection is at the root of most addictions. But here's the thing, um, and this is an important note that I've just really recently brought into my you know courses and you know talking to people and writings is that it doesn't freaking matter. I mean, yes, I'm, you know, if you had sexual abuse or any kind of trauma, it doesn't matter. Like physical abuse doesn't matter. Um, what matters is you can't sit there with a beer and a joint or a joint or a cupcake and expect to solve those issues without abstinence, without the actual emotions flowing through your body. Believe me, they will present themselves in the first year or two. What's important is that you've got to get abstinent from whichever substance you're trying to medicate, self-medicate with, and be with a crowd of people that's going to say, you're not crazy. It sounds like you're losing your mind. It feels like you're losing your mind. But A, half of it's, not, or, you know, 60, 80% of it's physical, and that will pass. And then after that, when the emotions both the daily stressors and the reoccurrence or the remembering of the trauma-based stuff starts to resurface, then you're in a place where you're 60, 90 days, six months clean and have a support team around you that can say, okay, let's deal, it. Let's deal with it now, right? And then the other parts of your life start to clean up. But the problem that's missing out there is the marijuana now and the sugar for sure is not included in the quote-unquote hard drugs because this construct mm -hmm. is very well known in decades of substance use disorder recovery. It's just not well known in this world, and it sounds far-fetched. It sounds like it's a stretch, right? But it's not a stretch to people who have, as I mentioned, lost 200 pounds and gone through this recovery. They went through the, you know, this is a not a politically correct word anymore, but at the crazies trying to get to the other side because they had this flood of emotions when they got abstinent. They, because now they don't have this manipulate the substance to manipulate. They got to go for a walk. They got to call somebody. They got to get a hug. Like you said, they got to do something different to manage these everyday stressors and the possibility of old trauma resurfacing. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with old trauma and helping these folks through are do you believe that there's a an effective method at doing that because there's a lot of different ways to deal with trauma is it just understanding that you have had this trauma is it something like emdr to deal with brain spotting what's your what's your take to work through some of the levels of trauma especially when it comes to addiction yeah, no, that's a great question. And I want to preface it with, you know, because I'm starting to get to the point where, you know, these talks are getting out there and I'm getting blowback. I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I am not schooled or trained in this, but I am, a, you know, a certified peer recovery coach. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge fan of the peer-to-peer -peer model, right? Where the person that can help you, the persons that can help you, or the persons that have gone through this before, right? They've they've walked this path before. They, you know, it's almost impossible not to find someone in, you know, depending on what uh, tribe you join, what recovery, uh, peer recovery group you join, that hasn't experienced exactly this, you know, exactly what you're going through. And there's, you know, some different kind of sayings that there's a, in, in alcohol recovery, there's something called terminal uniqueness. It's terminal uniqueness means that you get dead thinking that you're diff this much different than other people, right? Because there's somebody in recovery that's been has your same story, who's been through your same trauma, who's been through probably a lot worse, who's mm -hmm. been through all of this stuff before, and they can help you and they will help you. They, it's so funny that people in recovery generally, ninety-five percent of them get a huge jolt because it helps them to help another person struggle, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm a big fan both in the recovery advocacy movement and in our kind of new sugar recovery advocacy movement to get these stories out there, get the stories of 
I don't, you know, yeah, I do a summit with all the big Harvard guys and Cornell guys, but what's more important is that the stories of average folks who've been through this get out there. And, and it's the peer recovery stuff I believe in mostly. Yes, I'm sure there's techniques and I'm sure one-on-one therapy helps, but I'm a fan of peer recovery. Mm-hmm. Just somebody that has been a mile in the same shoes. Right. I think that that can go a long way for huge support. Yeah. I think the problem that I see in practice is that, you know, someone will come in and see me and I'm like, here's what you need to do. Here are the steps and boom, 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 boom. And then they're gone and I don't see them again for maybe a month or whatever it is. And, and in that time frame, you know, they're left to their own devices without, you know, and that motivation is there initially. And then it wanes mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and they don't have that motivation long-term and then you go back to your old habits or you go back to your old soothing ways or whatever that is in the interim or, oh, this cookie doesn't matter or this diet, you know. So what I have found something that's interesting in practice, I'm curious if you've seen the same thing, is that the people that do best are living for something bigger than themselves, meaning Mm -hmm. that their goal is bigger than... So if someone says, you know, I I really want to consult with you, I want to lose weight. Losing weight isn't a motivating factor or looking great in a swimsuit isn't really enough of a motivating factor when your boyfriend dumps you and you're sobbing at, you know, midnight, whatever it is. And that, you know, hostess, whatever cake is there. Right. So, but, but somebody that, that they're, they feel like they're losing feeling in their feet. um, And, you know, they have some sort of neuropathy and they can't walk across to see their child graduate is a much bigger um, goal than themselves, right? And so I actually see those people that have these big goals do so much better when it comes to like breaking addictions on their own, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Um, And I'm just curious if you've seen the same thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we call it your, you know, I didn't invent it, but it's called your why, your big why, you know, why are you doing this? And if I don't get that out of them, then we don't have the same success rate, you know, because if they can't see it. And one of the things I found, you know, some people are visual and I wonder, (laughs) I've often wondered why visualization courses exist, right? Um, Because from as small as I can remember, (laughs) I was visualizing the future. All right. Yeah. And I can't never remember a time in my life where I wasn't thinking about, and it could have been the chaotic home, the alcoholic home that I grew up in. I don't know. But I was always thinking about what's the next place I can be that's a little better than this, you know? And what's the goal? You know, athletics, I did it in athletics and it worked. You know, you, know, you see a gymnast sitting at the, at the uh, Olympics and he's going like this. And he's like literally yeah. visualizing the whole routine, like sitting there. That he's about to get up and do, and it, it works. It's a very effective tool, and but a lot of people don't have that, de- never developed that, didn't know, don't even know it exists, kind of thing. And if they can't see that um, bigger life, as you said, if you're not, if you're the life you're going to is not bigger than the life you're leaving, you're going to have limited success for sure. That's an absolute uh, tenant pillar of what we do, and I think recovery in general. Yeah. So I am curious about, so something, a topic I don't know a lot about um, mm-hmm. is marijuana. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know a, a ton about marijuana, um, okay. much more studied on, on sugar and alcohol. So, yeah. so it's been interesting to hear um, what the marijuana lobby has done here, for example, where they... Um, are saying that it's not a gateway drug, it's completely safe, there's no issues about it. But anybody that I talk to that is in any sort of the addiction realm has said, no, marijuana is actually definitely very addictive. They have a very strong lobby to keep some of these um, facts at bay that it is a very addictive substance. Um, What have you seen with marijuana specifically in addiction? Yeah, well, let me tell you my story. It's uh, it's relative in a lot of ways. Um, so in 1983, I walked into uh, my first meeting of a recovery group, 
And cocaine had got to me and I literally was on my knees. So I quit cocaine literally that day. But it took me another three months to quit marijuana because at the end of the day, I had quit drinking like a couple of years before that, but I was still doing drugs. And so it took me another three months till February 15th of 84 to go. And yes, it involved a woman because I was pining on Valentine's Day. But um, <laughs> it, it was like I on the 15th of February, I quit marijuana for the last time. And when I quit for the first month, when I would go to the gym, I would go to the gym, and lift weights. And while I was lifting weights, I would literally get this gigantic throbbing brain headache on one, only one side of my brain. Now, why? I don't know. And I would literally be high again because THC stores in fat, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're a cocaine addict for, you know, whatever, four or five months, that stuff will kill you quick. Uh, you're pretty skinny and you don't got a lot of other fat, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the fat in my brain was literally holding the THC, okay? And I would get, like, I would do the exercise and I would be stoned out of my gourd for a couple of hours like I smoked the joint, right? Because the THC was still coming out. This lasted for 30 full days, you know, like the four or five or six times I went to lift weights during that 30-day period, I was high every time and I had the headache thing every time. That was mind-blowing to me and very, very, you know, awareness building for me, right? Mm -hmm. And I just literally, I don't know how this happened, but I just read a thing about uh, marijuana that the THC content of my marijuana back then was 2 to 4%. Today, it's 27 to 35%. I couldn't even imagine what would happen to me if I smoked the joint today, right? I'd be like, forget about it. So I really believe that the THC is stored in the fat molecules and that there's a, that you're not getting high. It's kind of like the sugar and any drug really, but you're not really getting high because you always have a level of THC in your body. You're just kind of, you're getting back to normal, right? Um, and marijuana is very different. There's a great book out there, and you may want to get this woman on your podcast called oh, – no, I can't remember it. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll send it to you. But she's, right. she talks about her drug of choice where she thinks that marijuana is, was her drug of choice as well. Hmm. Because, and she's done it all, cocaine, everything, and she's a neuroscientist now. It's a great book, great on audio. <sighs> anyway, I'll think of it. But she says that cannabinoid, cannab cannabinoids have receptors all over your body. It's not a circumstance where there's, um, you know, it's hitting the dopamine like alcohol, marijuana, or alcohol and, and uh, cocaine okay. and heroin and stuff yeah. where it's hitting the brain reward system. It's hitting all over your body, the cannabinoid receptors, I think she calls them or whatever. And so it's a different high. But the more important part, I think, is that the stuff is stored in the fat. You know, it's stored in your fat and takes 30, it's half-life is a long time to get out. Mm -hmm. So, and one of the things that, and this is great for this discussion because I cannot believe that this went away. I don't know where it went and I don't, I want to, let's have you and me bring it back because a motivational syndrome is real. Okay. People mm -hmm. that are pot smokers have, I had it. People have a motivational syndrome and everybody giggles about it. Like, okay, you know, you're a stoner and you can't get up off the couch. Right. Well, sugar addiction is an a motivational creates a motivational syndrome as well. You cannot, because instead of doing an emotional management technique that requires effort, like a walk or, you know, getting a massage, something that requires effort, you can substitute dopamine juice squirts hits by just ingesting. So you don't have to get up off the couch. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then the vicious cycle begins. Right. And so this a motivational syndrome in marijuana, I wish someone would bring it back and start talking about it more. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Some of the studies I, I haven't looked in a while, but some of the studies are hard to find. What I noticed when I would see uh, people that smoked a lot of pot, um, is they would be in debilitating pain. It's like they had no association to their pain levels. And then when I would go to, you know, cause I'm a chiropractor by trade, when I would go to adjust them, it was like, there was no end play to the joint. It just kept on going through 
like they had had created ligament laxity. Um, it was very, wow. very strange. And I've only seen that in that particular case. So it's, wow. it's very interesting when I see that, um, when somebody is a habitual, um, especially smoker, um, mm-hmm. not so much. I don't see it so much with the edible piece. Um, but I see it when they're a habitual smoker, which is quite interesting. So it's got to be from some of the toxic byproducts of the smoke creating more inflammation. Yeah, I'm sure it's probably trapped in the joints like you're describing. You know? Yeah. So if it, I think it, a lot is trapped in the joints, definitely caffeine, mm-hmm. uric acid, these, a lot of things get stuck in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so these folks, you just feel like they, how long does it take um, in a peer-to-peer setting when somebody is addicted to these types of, of drugs to really feel like they have been rehabilitated? <laughs> yeah, I'm 35 right? years in and I don't think I'm rehabilitated. You know what I mean? It's Hard. like, it's, it's, uh, it's like whack-a-mole, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you got process addictions, you know, money stuff comes up, gambling stuff comes up, sex stuff comes up, relationship stuff, you know, mm-hmm. The core, I think, is, you know, a codependency is kind of of a weird, overused word, but that relationship that you have with yourself is an important ingredient in this. And that the substances, be if they're substances or processes with gambling or whatever sex, you know, um, they really just provide the pain relief, you know. And in order to get to the real true other side, you really need to be uh, aware of your, um, you know, your self-esteem, you know, your, how you feel about yourself, how you treat yourself, how you speak to yourself. And, you know, that transcends into how you have relationships with other people. So there's, it, it gets deeper and, and only the people, you mentioned it, the, the people I call seekers, the people who are willing to continue to grow, who continue to want to have a life bigger than their the life that they're leaving because some people are campers. I don't know if you ever heard this term, but if you're headed to the summit of a mountain, some people get pretty high and they like the view and that's as far as they're going, but other people go past them to the summit because it's hard. You know, there's work involved. Uh, It's, you know, you gotta, you gotta put out effort and you gotta visualize where you're going and recovery is no different, you know, than anybody's regular life or goal setting. And you just got to keep after it. Mm-hmm. And we're talking years of yeah. recovery generally. Yeah. This is yeah. just a constant, constant, you know, yeah. I mean, it's been interesting because my drug of choice that I really had to be, you know, I, I smoked cigarettes for oh, a good long while. I think I smoked for five years and I'll never forget breaking that addiction. I mean, I really smoke cigarettes like a pack a day and mm-hmm. people look at me and they're like, whoa, that's so weird. But, you know, the college days when you didn't really know any better, right? And they were said to be okay. Boy, I hope I don't really pay for that later. But <laughs> right. anyway, tried to, I've tried to pay penance for that. But anyway, right, right, right. but um, I remember when I quit smoking, it was, I just remember the flood of emotions when I was trying to quit, but couldn't, like the powerful emotions of of getting through that and how emotionally addicted I was to cigarettes. And then the same thing, you know, I I remember the same thing with caffeine, just trudging through that and hearing all kinds of studies like, oh, caffeine is healthy for you. But I, for me personally, every time that I would drink caffeine, I would feel a higher level of anxiety. Just in general, I would feel more anxious and I'm already a type enough. I don't really need any more, but I would also notice that, um, I would crash harder, uh, you know, later on in the day. And mm-hmm. then I, I saw that I actually ate more. Like I would crave other things. I would crave sugar, especially at that 3 PM crash, even though I just drank caffeine in the morning mm-hmm. and it really, those things really affected me. And of course, you know, sugar was, a huge drug of choice for me, but just pairing off each of those addictions one by one was really kind of an interesting growing experience. But I think just giving up smoking was just this huge reaction where I couldn't squash down my feelings anymore. And, um, I made this analogy at the time and I don't know if it's true, but 
this, the cigarettes created distance between me and other people. It actually created a safe space for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, in Chinese medicine, lungs are about grief. And so I really felt like I was suppressing my grief and keeping people away, whether that's voodoo or who, I don't know, but for whatever reason in my life that resonated from what I experienced when I was younger. So I always found that to be like a really interesting, powerful experience, but really digging down into those, um, deep, heavy emotions that you never really want to feel. Honestly, you just want to feel up and alive and, and be happy and be the life of, you know, whatever party I don't really drink either. So, but it was just really interesting to see that. No, it's a, it's a really excellent articulation of the process, right? Um, where you were able to, and I don't know if you did this in foresight, but it definitely in hindsight, you're doing it now where you kind of understood the process that you were, or, or came to understand the process that you were going through. And, uh, you know, cigarette smoking is, as the awareness was built, you know, like I think in the 60s or 70s, 60s, maybe mm-hmm. 40 or 53% of Americans smoke cigarettes. And now it's less than 14. And that happened from the awareness of the tobacco litigation, you know, where every day for years, people were talking about this, you know, suing, 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 and this is bad, this is bad. But this, you know, your emotional, your understanding of the emotional stuff um, is very real. And it's, you know, what do I want to say? Touch, touchy-feely people, like they, they can't put it, like some people think that you can just turn it off, right? You can just turn it off. And it's just not true, you know? There's a lot of mature forums now that are coming up on caffeine where, um, and definitely cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes have been around, you know, the, 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 what you're talking about, the, the mature people uh, who really want to stay off the stuff talk exactly like you're talking, you know, whereas the other folks said, I quit, put it down, never picked it up again, right? Well, they probably pick something else up, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like that kind of, uh, I don't know, machoism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and some people can do it, you know, but most people can't, you know. A, they do have to get the abstinence, but then they have to understand that they need a new way to process through emotions, right? They, they got to get a new system. or And like we've talked about, people will substitute one for the other, train them back and forth, go back and forth, go one, go sugar, go, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Mm-hmm. So getting all the way through the other side. And I'm, I've often said I'm, you know, too holistic for my own good, but <laughs> call, call me, you know, stupid or crazy or whatever. But I want to know what my body minus, I call it powder addiction, you know, anything that's been reduced to a powder or smoke or whatever. It's like, I want to know what my body can do, my mind can do, my, my, my being can do without this stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. I think just intuitively, I know that it can do better. Right. Yeah. Um, because I always <laughs> I would tell people, okay, so you're going to a concert, right? And you got a little pot, a little beer, a little whiskey, a little acid, a little cocaine. What's the goal going to this concert? Mm-hmm. The goal is to get to the concert at 930 when the main band comes on and be perfect to have blended these things together so that you have managed or manipulated the state that you're in to feel the best for the concert, right? Mm. Well, just think about people doing this all day, every day with sugar, flour, caffeine, and nicotine, okay? Mm -hmm. So that they're unconsciously doing this like, you know, I I can only have a cup and a half. I'm going to this meeting or I have the jitters. I can, you know, if I drink, if I have too many donuts, I'll be, I'll be down. I can't, you know, so they're trying to make this balance happen, and they're literally playing with their biochemistry. They're playing with their dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, mm-hmm. GABA. And they're playing with all these things. And this is like cultural. This is like ingrained. It's, and it's also unconscious. So they haven't even thought about doing it. They're just doing it, you know, because these things are very inexpensive and ubiquitous and free, almost free that they just think it's life. Mm-hmm. They just think, I need to grab a donut. I need to grab a coffee. I need to grab a cigarette. I need... And they're not thinking about why. You know, they're not thinking about why they're doing this, right? Until, like I said, they get some abstinence and get to the other side, then they start to understand. And no one with any abstinence from any of these processes or these drugs thinks back and doesn't understand what we're discussing right now. They get it. Mm -hmm. It's going from the standard American diet, the standard American culture, 
into this is where the problem. People cannot visualize it. They can't imagine not living with it, you know, that, that they need, that they quote unquote need it, you know, anyway, rambling on a little bit, you get it. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the hardest, um, so, you know, two comments on that, but I think one of the, the hardest pieces that I've seen, cause you know, I don't drink, you know, I, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty particular about what I eat. Um, you know, I, and, you know, I, I don't do any of the social habits, you know, around mm-hmm. drugs or whatnot. So I just like to go out and, you know, I like to exercise or I like to just rest at the end of the day or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes it really hard to have a social life because you don't go get a beer with somebody. And, yeah. and I just personally, I've never really had a problem with alcohol. I just don't really like it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to go get a coffee with somebody, you know, a lot of these things are taken out from a socialization aspect. And I think that a lot of people feel pure pressure to do that. And a common question I get asked is, well, you don't drink. What do you do when you go to a social get together and somebody, you know, pressures you to drink? I mean, I don't. I, I don't care. I just say, you know, I'm not interested. And if they press, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm, I'm still not interested. I mean, you're not right. going to change my opinion. I don't right. want to feel like that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I feel terrible when I've had one glass of alcohol or I just don't like the taste or no, thank you, uh, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But a lot of people feel the pure pressure of that. Why, um, why do you think that is? You know, again, I have three or four major tenets of uh, our work, and this is a lot of people say the hardest one. You know, mm-hmm. it really is. It's the hardest thing to. What's that uh, Zen saying? You know, it's not. There's no no great shakes to be a, uh, perfectly adjusted to a sick society kind of thing. It's like you know, I. I it's just, it's, it's an evolutionary in culture. It, we, we've been enculturated for three, 400 years to have all these substances part of the norm, right? And it's going to take, uh, like right now, you know, cigarette smokers are vilified. You know, they're just not. And people that drink and drive are vilified. Mm-hmm. But literally as short as, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was not the case. You know, society had not switched. And so we're in the, a tectonic shift of accepting the healthy, better way. And, you know, I I just, the only way I've seen is to get new peers. If you were to go on an athletic team, if you're going to get a new job or go to a new school, a college, whatever, you would would end up with new friends, different friends. And in order to be successful, and I believe this with all my heart, in order to be successful in the changes around the things you and I are discussing – you need to have people who think like you and I do, or think like that, like that you're where you're headed. You know that that understand that the possibility exists that if you smoke or you do drugs or you use cigarettes or, or use sugar or whatever in excess. I mean, there's actually proven peer-reviewed science. Like I always love the saying, "You're going to become the average of the five people you hang around with most." Mm-hmm. Um, love that saying. And now there is the science has come out with a big study where you become the average weight of the five people you hang around with. They've done cluster tests. They've, I mean, it's big, a big, big test. You can find it in the literature. And so you've got to get that new tribe. You've got to get that new crowd. And to be adapted to the old one, like you said, doesn't bother me anymore, but I'm pretty introverted anyway, so it's mm-hmm. not a big problem. And uh, over years of not drinking and doing drugs, I've found that people don't really care what you're drinking and drugs, but they, it's almost like the sugar's harder because they've made it for you or there's a celebration and it's mm-hmm. a symbol of the celebration, like you mm-hmm. need to have the cake because everybody's having cake. That's the wedding or whatever. So. Yep. Yes, the social part is hard, and it's not to be taken lightly, nor is it to be ignored when you're trying to change. You know, you have to have to account for it and, and study it and, and be part of it, you know. And you know what's so interesting to me is with all of these things that stimulate dopamine and serotonin and epinephrine and norepinephrine, when I run these tests, they are always low, which mm. is so 
incredible to me that we are just overstimulating and running these pathways continuously and just running ourselves out. And then, you know, it, it, it creates these cravings for these things that we actually feel normal. Just like, why do I need to grab that donut or have that half a cup of coffee? If I have a full cup, I'm jittery, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. you just see these things, you know, create such havoc in, you know, in our lives. And I think everybody wants to go back to just solely diet, but it's really looking at, I think you nailed it, who's around us, what our stress level is, you know, all of those things to really look at a person's entire life and their entire health. So I think you're right. You're in a catbird seat. You really are. And and you may be, uh, I don't know what the right word is, you, you, you know, you're, you're in a gifted, unique place that you get to see this uh, feedback of their serotonin, uh, GABA, norepinephrine, you get to see their levels, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the world changed on something called a continuous glucose monitor. That's number one. That's the first biofeedback, the first hack that, you know, Google and Amazon are both working on non-invasive, bit, bit, wear on your wrist kind of things that yep. if you were wearing a Dexcon 6 right now, you could pick up your phone and you could look and you ate that banana, you ate this, whatever you ate, it would go, yes. instead of staying in the safe area, it would literally be bouncing in and out, right? And so then people could see what they were doing to the inside. And the tests that you describe are, you know, they're rare. Very few people get those or take those. And look, we're dealing with our brains. We're dealing with the beautiful brain that makes us depressed, happy, excited, whatever. And we're playing with 2 million, 3 million years of evolution. And only literally, in the, you know, it's like a blink in that two years, 10,000 years that we had the grains and the proud flowers and the caffeines and the drugs that we have now. And so the body that evolved over 2,999,900, you know what I mean? That body is not used to this stuff. I call it powder addiction. It's just not used to it, right? Powder addiction is like, yeah, you probably got a little sand or dust or dirt in your food back in the day and the body could handle it. But when you're pounding 15, excuse me, 20 to 30 teaspoons a day of this powder, A, you're peeing all the time. That's a symptom of diabetes. You got to urinate all the time because your body's trying to get it out, right? And when you stop, you stop peeing. It's like... Not rocket science that, you know, you stop sugar and flour, you can sleep through the night and don't have to go to the bathroom three or four times. That kind of stuff is so simple to explain to people, but they still, they, I don't know. It's part enculturation. It's part addiction. There's a big soup, a big, big stew of uh, why they're still doing it. But anybody gets the other side says, they, they say that to themselves. Why did I do that? How was I ever think? What was I thinking back then? You know, mm-hmm. that's wild. Really. Or I didn't know how much better I could feel, right. it, you know, and why didn't I do this sooner? Why did I rely, rely on all these quick fixes to feel better? But yeah, I just see it to be such an incredible, you know, problem. But I, I'm with you. I make people... I, I can't wait until we get continuous monitoring, but I make people prick themselves three you know, times a day nice. just to really see what the blood sugar levels are doing so that they can actually get that feedback. Because people mm-hmm. will say, well, I don't have any symptoms of eating that. I haven't noticed anything. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, let's go ahead and check this. And then that actually holds them accountable when they see the blood sugar spike that much or when they see what one glass of alcohol does to them or when they see what that chocolate chip cookie does, or those five chocolate chip cookies, you know, even though they're not feeling any symptoms, but it's keeping them from getting to their goals. It actually makes it tangible. They have to see it on paper or on, you know, the, the glucometer to really get a full appreciation of what's going on. But I think that that's a really, really powerful way to, to show them and to um, help, help them to understand and to be involved in the process mm-hmm. without me constantly being like, what, what is it? What do you, what do you think? I'm like, send me a Google drive with your blood sugar every day. And they're like, she's going to be looking at it. Is she going to judge me? No. But I think it's, I think it's just a really valuable tool because we know that blood sugar dysregulation really is going to deplete our neurochemicals in such a big way and then feed the pathogens in the gut 
you know, and, you know, create that vicious cycle. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we've got to get this feedback. I wasn't a biohacker before. I've come to know that that this is something I want to know everything about. Now, again, I'm kind of obsessed a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm a hundred percent agreement, man. We got to, we got to, because look, you can eat, <laughs> you can, you can eat a, you know, donuts for 50, 40 years and probably be okay. But, mm-hmm. you know, then you start to, the, the wheels come off the bus at that point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like the cocaine back in the day, that'll, that'll act really quick. The meth will act really quick. Um, but caffeine, that's probably not going to kill you or, and you know, it's so subtle. It's not, it's, but it's going to take years before the deep anxiety hurts. And then, it, it, then it's going to be like hard to get off, you know, you're, or you're, you're going to end up with cardiovascular disease. Right, you're habituated to it too. Yeah. Large portion of America, right? Yeah, yeah. Number one killer. So sure. was there anything that I didn't cover that's important or that you wanted to talk about? No, I mean, I think it was pretty comprehensive. I think that, you know, folks are, I mean, you talk about the why and people need to see it. One of the things I find is uh, that the folks that are successful are a little bit of a pioneer in their own life. They, they, they're not afraid to, you know, either in athletics or um school or job or family or something. They're the first to do something or they're not afraid. You know, they don't honestly give a shit what other people think. If they've done their research and they, you know, they're willing to step out and try it. Mm-hmm. And those are the, what, you know, Silicon Valley calls the early adopters. They're the, I call it canaries in the coal mine. You know, those <laughs> are the, you know, those are the, those are the people that are going to change and save society because look, this stuff hurts them and they know it hurts them and they're willing to do whatever it takes to stop it from hurting them and they start to feel it. And so, you know, if this resonates with them, you know, with folks that are listening, then they would, you know, do what it takes to get the research in your, you know, in your, uh, get the research and, and change something. You know? So that's the, you know, pattern recognition kind of stuff. You see enough people do this, you know, you know, you figure out who that person is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think that, I think most people are so disassociated out of their body. They don't even know what's affecting them. So I think that being back in your body is so critical. Oh yeah. And where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or be a part of one of your programs? Where what's what are all the details on yeah, that? Yeah, the easiest way is the the event you were on uh, is the Quit Sugar Summit. Just just wrapped um, it was a virtual summit with you know all the educators in this field. Um, but if you go there and, and leave your email, we have other stuff that we can you know we'll know we'll tell you when the next one is. It's our fifth annual. We're going to have the sixth annual, but it'll be a while. But there's still other information that we have. But mostly, I'm at sugaraddiction.com. Uh, and if there's a book there that's right on the homepage, you can just download. It's free. Kind of give my story again in a little bit, and then some. You know, a little plan to walk out of this. Uh, but yeah, that's the easiest way. Just go to sugaraddiction.com. Uh, you know, we've got Facebook pages. We're the biggest Facebook page and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, just we're we're out there. Just Mike Collins Sugar Addiction. You'll you'll find me. And that was a cool <laughs> event. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I enjoyed it. You were great on it too. We did. Thank we did uh, the dopamine serotonin connection is so under talked about. Not you know, no one knows about it that I love bringing it up. And strangely, three or four other people brought it up this year when you know past years no one did so. Really? Yeah. There's more and more research out there. And I think we don't want to overstep and be like, well, we think X, Y, Z, but now the research is coming out and supporting, I think what we've theorized for a really long time, but now we actually have the research to back it up and to be able to speak freely about it. So I I really Mm. think that finally the research has caught up. Well, that's what I always say. I call myself a 12-step anthropologist, right? Say there's a bunch of 12-step groups that work this out in a church basement by trial and error over 30 years. But now the science says it. The science Mm -hmm. is figuring out why that worked, why that process worked. The science, you know. And that's, you know, people... I shouldn't say this, but I get in a lot of trouble, but, you know, mm-hmm. people rely a little bit too much on science when mm-hmm. like our elders or people that have traveled the path, they already, 
they don't need to know why it works. They right. just know that it worked. Yeah. Now it's now that's how we validate, right? That's how we validate. Yeah. Everybody wants to know the research or the studies. So sure. it's like it's cool. I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm getting better. One time I asked Doctor, I said, Doctor, so you got to calm the science down a little bit. And he admonished me and says, Mike, just let let them know that I have the science. You know, mm-hmm. that's what's important, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, as long as you can back it up, everybody's fine. But if you're speaking willy nilly, they get a little nervous. And I also <laughs> asked, I also asked him, like, aren't you afraid of like the processed food? It's like a trillion dollar industry. And he goes, No, man, I got the science now. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being here today. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for doing the summit and uh, have some inviting me here. Appreciate yeah, totally. It. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.